Welcome to the Flawed, Foolish and Fantastic Podcast. Wahguru Ji Khalsa, Wahguru Ji Fateh. Wahguru Ji Khalsa, Wahguru Ji Fateh. Bhai Sahib, thank you very much for coming on the Flawed, Foolish and Fantastic Podcast. Uh, Flawed and Foolish is me and Monpreet Singh. We are here to learn from you. You are our fantastic guest for the day. Um, and the purpose of this podcast, um, there's so many podcasts out there, we've just been talking about it. The purpose of this podcast is to actually talk about you as an individual rather than as well as your collective work but to more find out the hardships the work that you put in the effort and time in order to bring out the Sikh history uh, through publications sites websites everything you've done um, and it's to highlight you as an individual um, because a lot of people will know Gurun Singh Man, the historian the scholar who's put things out but they don't know Gurun Singh Man, the, the individual mm. the human you know his family life and yeah. And things like that. So if you're happy, are you all right to crack on with the question? Absolutely. And I just want to say I'm really glad to be on the podcast today. You're, you're undertaking a great um, piece of work to actually illuminate and help individuals across the world to actually learn more about Sikhi and the Sikh history that we need to kind of protect and preserve as well. So, yeah, let's well, go with it. That's the problem, isn't it? Mm. We, like you said, we, mm. don't, we don't focus on the individuals and then... Mm people end up going or disappearing and you're like, where are they sort of thing. Yeah. So, no, thank you for coming. First question is always the most difficult one. Yeah. Um, because it's about yourself. Who is Gurinder Singh Wan? I think as an individual, um, I always wanted to do something apart from the day job. Yeah. And what that means is we all have to do come. We all have to get money. We all have to, we raise families yeah. and we have a presence in this world. Yeah. But that leaves you short. Yeah. It leaves you short because we run, we run through life. We walk through life first, but we run through life because as we get older, the years are, are coming upon us. So for me, it was always been a case of what else can we do additionally? Yeah. And then it was always about um, doing something which I can leave. I won't say legacy, because the word legacy means you've got to leave something in place for people, but more about impart education mm. some form of education which can actually you know generations later will be able to say look this is a body of work which is important it wasn't necessarily all the outputs i've done now but it was my original goal was just to say okay let's work on Sikh history let's get things out there which haven't traditionally been heard of before or known about before because i think that was always the issue because when i always picked up a book it always had the same amount of information in. And we always started off with the Ten Gurus and generally all the books kind of followed that kind of um, trajectory, so to speak. So my idea was always to, as an individual, we work, we live, we raise families, but also at the same time, what can we do to actually elevate our minds as well? Mm. How do we elevate ourselves so therefore we are actually doing something for the community, for the Garm, but then also personal satisfaction as well. Because from this gum, there has to be some kind of personal satisfaction in the sense that you feel over the number of years you've done your gum, it's for the community, but self-satisfaction to say, look, I contributed towards X, Z, or Y. Yeah. And I think that's, that was always my goal to say, you know, but it makes you happy as well. Yeah. Doing research makes me happy a lot of people think oh yeah it's a lot of hard work it's always going to be hard work but it's also self-satisfaction to say you've achieved something when you reach that goal it's the hobby isn't it 
The hobby keeps you alive. It, the hobby keeps you alive, but hobby is like a, I would use the word. I would use that word slightly um, sparingly, if that if I can use that yeah. word, because this is not a hobby for me, as you can probably tell. This is really yeah, but, but it's, it overtakes your I, life. I see a hobby mm-hmm. as something that you are not being paid for. Yeah, yeah, it's basically something that you're doing at your own will and course. Yeah. Work you have to do for you have to work, don't you? Mm. But I see me doing the, the podcasts or the mm. websites or the books. It's yeah. something I do because I enjoy it. You know, it's, it's the same for yourself. I've seen that all the way through. No, absolutely. absolutely. And that's fine. Well, first thing I want to focus on is your background. Mm. So my, my, my question to everybody is, tell mm. me about your childhood and family background. Yeah. So... Obviously, my mum and dad, based in the Punjab, mm-hmm. different regions. Um, they came in into England in the 60s. Um, my father's really educated, actually. He'd already had a degree before he even came into the came into England. Yeah. He'd already started a work in Chandigarh okay. um, before he came into England. So I think that was really important, having coming from an educational background where, you know, father's really educated... Um, my mum had come from a strong family of Jagidars which go back to the Daliwale missiles um, so I had this kind of strong background about Sikhi growing up in England um, in the early days it was always about knowing little snippets of Sikhi yeah. if, if, I can, if I can use that word and to some extent, it's not changed, believe it or not, I would say. Um, we'll come on to that um, when you look at social media and things like that. But the idea, you know, when you're going to a Gurdwara, for instance, you're actually um, getting information. Information is imparted on you. It's in a certain way. So we know what happens when you go to a Gurdwara, sub, and we know what kind of information and what kind of sermons we would get, if we can use that word, yeah. is um, in terms of... Um, you hear the Bani, you hear the Qatar, and it's and then, but if you add another level to that, if you look at the historical side, the pictures that used to be on the walls yeah. were always the one about the Shaheeds, but without much context. So growing up, you're always thinking that Sikhs have always had, you know, there's blood, there's massacres, things like that. And it's interesting because many, many, many years later, when you look into those stories, I personally think they could have been told in a different way or represented in a different way. Because mm. I think shock and awe tactics of the Sikhs has always been there in terms of, you know, understanding our Shaheeds and things like that. So when you see these kind of things, you have an inclination as to what they are, but you don't understand it fully yeah. when you're growing up. So when I was growing up, um, history originally was not really that important. It was only in my later years yeah. that I kind of thought, let's kind of understand and learn more about world history. So I did that off my own back anyway. Yeah. So the Sorgini was simply this. I will look at Sikhi at some point, don't yeah. know when, but let me look at world religions first. Okay. So then I started delving into um, the Egyptian side of life. I've even been to Egypt as well. So, you know, it's those kind of things. I'm a kind of person, if I'm looking at history... I will go and try and visit those places, um, look at ancient Greece, look at Rome, you know, the Romans, look at South uh, um, South American religions, you yeah. know, the ones which no one talks about, the Chinese religions, talk about Taoism, yeah. um, obviously Buddhism as well. So all of that I wanted to cover just to kind of get a background on life mm. according to other people. 
yeah. if we can say that. So I think that was really important for me to kind of, whilst you're working, you're getting your education. Because um, education, see, I started this before I went to university. Yeah. So then I went to university in London, got, got a degree in management, so management system science. So I was actually inclined towards actually, you know, working in management. Yeah. But the history side was had already started before I went to university. Yeah. So the university to Baba Yeah. I still felt that need because when you're in big place like London, um, you have a void as well. Yeah. You get this void in terms of you're learning things, but there's a void. So when I came back, yeah. that is when I said to myself, okay, um, I need to do something with everything I'm learning. And it wasn't too long after I came back from university, started doing a bit of gum, yeah. that I said, you know what? I think I need to do this more in a challenged way. And that's when I um, got on to do a master's degree in South Asian religions. And that was just around about 1997. Right, I'm going to hold you there. Yeah. Because you've answered that like a politician. I've asked you about your childhood and family background. And all you talked about is mum and dad. Not talking about schooling, mm. life, family. Mm. Give me those first. The so, whole point of this is about you. Yeah, I mean... What was your grounding and background? We can get to your education afterwards. Yeah, I mean, schooling was... Um, where were you born? Where were you brought up? So I was born in Leicester anyway. Okay, yeah. So I was born in Leicester. I've, I've lived in Leicester the majority of my life. Yeah. Um, apart from um, when I went to university yeah. for a couple of years. Um, that was only for about three years. But then I came back to Leicester. Yeah. Schooling uh, was always in the local areas. And um, generally... Wait. Where did you get? Did you live towards this area then? Yeah, I mean, I started off um, near um, near Abbey Park. Okay. Yeah. So, grew up around that area. So, yeah. no Abbey Park really. Yeah, really yeah, no. So, did you go to a primary school that's now? Yeah. In front of the park that's itself. That's right. Yeah, yeah. The corner, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, started off there, and then we moved um, more towards the Rushmead area. Yeah. And then um, it was the schools around here, Mellor, and then Rushy Mead as well. Yeah. There were the key kind of growing aspects. And obviously at that time as well, um, late 70s, early 80s, there was still that kind of national front, e- around, national yeah. front ethos going on as well. So you obviously face discrimination. I was a lot younger there, but my brother growing up and looking at his friends, um, there's always that element of, you know, race, yeah. racism going on but interestingly there's one incident um where one day me and my brother were in the house yeah. and there was about um a number of skinheads probably national front people as well and there's one up and up and there and they actually literally dragged him and chucked him over our fence <laughs> and it it was eye-opening because you used to see little bits at school yeah. but because I wasn't attending that big school yeah. it was an eye-opener as to what could happen to you at any particular time yeah. Some people say these kind of things actually kind of build you up to do... Mold you, but Yeah, make you involved. For me, it was more a case of, okay, well, these things are happening. How do you go around countering it? Mm. Now, I wasn't at that age where you could actually make a difference, but the only way people fought back at that time was physically. Mm. And, you know, that was the only way to do it because there's no reasoning with people who no, hate, hate the colour of your skin, for instance. Mm. So so you should you would see... A lot of battles battles take place between Apne Bande mm. and the Gore, and then eventually, in certain parts of the city, um, you would see the change happening as well. Mm. 
But interestingly, I think what came about it was that um, you also had the mod scene as well, the mods. Yeah, yeah. And they were in between, whilst they looked like they were National Front, yeah. yeah, but they weren't, if yeah. that makes sense. And some of them were generally got on with the Asians, if that and makes they're sense. They were just trying to assimilate and be in the crowd, weren't they? Correct, correct. And so what has happened is, I think that um, during the early phases, there was that change, and then everyone did start to get get to you know, yeah get to integrate but then work together as well if mm. that makes sense so I think um, witnessing things like that was also important because you tend to find that um, there's challenges yeah there's this kind of idea about is life always going to be like this because yeah. that's important because in certain parts of the world if yeah. you always see things like oppression racism things like that you probably think oh it's always going to be the case yeah. but um here there was obviously a change which took place um but obviously you don't see that around the world where let's just say brutality you know oppression is a, a daily occurrence if that makes sense mm. so seeing things like this was an eye-opener but i was always confident and i always have a belief in humanity where that eventually the good will prevail over the over the bad yeah. essentially as well because i think that's really really important you sh this idea of negativeness it's not something I believe in. I'm always a very, very positive person. And even if something is not going to plan, yeah. I always believe that eventually something good will come out of it. So, yeah. And that has to come over time because when you're faced with challenges, when you have to overcome numerous um, things throughout your life, the concept of Jardikala reigns supreme. Yeah. And, you know, that goes back to our calm from the 18th century as well. So um, I'm glad that concept exists because if you understand the concept of Jardikala yeah. properly, you will realise that even through the adversities of you life, carry you carry on in life. We'll talk about the seat missiles later on, but, uh, but yeah, absolutely. From that, just a quick thing, mm. you mentioned you and your brother. Is that all your family set up? You, yeah, you, yeah, just so you, your brother. Just me and my mom brother, and mum and dad, and that's it. Really. You have grandparents in the house? When you were no, um, no, they were always in the Punjab, <laughs> and um, they both passed away yeah. when I was really little. Okay. So I never had that input from yeah. them in terms of what I did, if that makes sense. Yeah. Which it's a shame, I think, because I would really have loved to have actually got yeah. um, their input on life, the Punjab. And you know it would have been interesting if. I was just like you take the little pearls of wisdom that they give you. Yeah, and then I'm sure I would have taken lots of pearls yeah. of wisdom. But my dad actually was able to, kind of, or has done over the years, yeah. given me the information that they would have had if that makes yeah. sense. So, yeah. No, it's fine. So you've touched upon your education, mm. and you've gone on to obviously you went from schooling here to mm. management studies in London. Mm. Um, take me through your education if you don't mind me asking. Because your education and later on steps into, for me, the first piece of working to the Dutton. Mm. So if you don't mind me doing that. So how do you go from schooling here in Leicester, yeah. management in London, then mm. all of a sudden coming yeah. into... Coming back, yeah. yeah. I think what it was, like I said, as I mentioned, is there's this void. So I'd already started history before I left to go to university yeah so that ladder was already started i was already climbing that little bit of that ladder if when that you, makes sense when you say you were looking at history mm. was that as part of your studies or was that a no, no, thing? no no so no, you were looking at world, world history just yourself. just because i was interested yeah and interestingly i used to study maps okay. which were religious maps okay now, that's different from a normal map 
These are maps which tell you about religions and how they spread, for instance. So I was always looking at things from a different point of view. But going back to what you're asking, um, so whilst I'm in London, I'm thinking, well, we need to do something different now, even when I come back. So normally people take a break, which I did for about a year, year and a half. And then what happens is um, the management thing's great, you know, you're working, etc. But then I always felt that... Um, my brother brought a book back from India. This is where the catalyst is. It was actually J.D. Cunningham's The History of the Sikhs, yeah. believe it or not. And I'm going through it and I'm reading it and there's a few things in there which are kind of sparking my interest more than others. And that was Dasam Granth. Yeah. And in it he called it Dasven Pashaka Granth. Yeah. And it's like you ask that, that million dollar question, what is the Dasven Pashaka Granth? Yeah. And so it's sparking my interest. I'm looking at other aspects of Sikh history as well, which I'm just cl uh, climbing on that particular ladder. And it's like, I'm not getting those answers. Yeah. We go to the Gurdwara, we ask a few people, and we're not getting the answers we want to. Mm. Doing a bit of research. Remember, this is just at the right at the tiny start of the internet. So, so you 90s, so we're talking mid-90s. Yeah, right? we're talking about 96, 97. Yeah, right. So between yeah. 95 and 97 is yeah. when I actually started getting this curiosity kind of yeah. thing uh, about information and Sikh history mm. and um, not getting those answers. And in the end, I always felt that, end of the day, if you cannot get the answers in life, you have to find them yourself. Yeah. And it has to come from within yourself. People ask me this all the time. Where did that spark come from? Where did you find the spark? Up, it has to come from inside. Yeah. You have to develop that. Or oh, a spark is hits you, and then you get that bug. Yeah. Did I get there? That bug. Once you get it, you never give it up. Of course. Because it becomes so important part of your life, essentially. Yeah. So what happens is we get. I'm reading through, like I said, various texts, etc. And I think at the end of the day, I just thought, okay, well, I'm just going to do a master's degree course mm. on South Asian religions. But as part of it, I will concentrate on the Dasam Granth. Yeah. Which is exactly what I did. And it was interesting, again, because information was very, very sparse at that time. We had some bodies of work which was there. And research-wise, it was very difficult to get the information. You yeah. could actually search for... In England, specifically, you could research for information like in libraries and things like that. But what I did was I also contacted people in the Punjab as well. Okay. So I did get in contact with Punjabi University, Patiala, and various other locations to start off, if that makes sense. Yes. But my aspect on the topic was the role of the Dasam Grant in Khalsa. Okay. which was a very, very nice icing on the cake of the subject, if we can call it that. Yeah. So it wasn't delving too much into well, the manuscript. Well, you're not delving into the source material itself, Ex but everything around it. Exactly. And the Nitinambanis, for instance, which yeah. are the Nitinambanis, which contribute to the concept of the Khalsa. And it sounds very, very easy. And it, and it to some extent it was, but like I said, from an information point of view, is very, very difficult. Mm. So looking at literature of the work of, Bihar Singh Badam, for instance, even Dr. Ashta, okay. Rutan Singh Junki, for instance, Dr. Dalitjan yeah. Singh. So there was a lot of source work that was available at that time, which I managed to get access to. Yeah. And that helped a lot. But then I was also formulating my own ideas as well, yeah. which about which Barney out, you know, from 
from the Dasan brand contributed to the Bani Bani we have, for instance, yeah. so whether it's Jaap Saab, Jopi Saab, um, yeah. etc. So I think it was great because I think um, it was that first stage on the Dasan Grant journey, mm-hmm. if we can call it that. And so for me, doing that master's degree was really good because it makes you into a researcher as well. Yeah. You become the researcher, you know where to, what archives to search for, you know how you want to formulate an argument as well. Because yeah. that's what education is about, formulating an argument. But what I didn't like was, because remember, at that time in the 90s, the Dasan Grant um, idea of authenticity had already been kicking around since about 91, 92. Yeah. It was done by the Institute of Sikh Studies. It all started and started blowing up quite a bit. So I try to stay away from that because it wasn't going to be helpful. It's never helpful. This mm. idea of authenticity has never helped anyone, yeah. pro or anti, if I can say that. And so stayed away from that, stuck with factual information, and that was like, the original start of that particular journey um, between 97 and 2001. Right, so you started about, uh, what's it, 97 and 2001? Yeah, so that was the... How did you end up getting funding for it? How did you you approach somebody to go, I want to study this? Well, the funding was... I paid for it myself. Yeah. Um, and that's that's one of the big things about it. It's it, not you weren't funded in any way. Mm, Other people are funded by institutions yeah. or groups or whatever. And that's one of the things I want to touch on. It's not a case that your thesis or your hypothesis were already put forward mm. by somebody else. And so can you research it? Mm. So how did you go, right, I'm going to fund this. I want to do this. Well... I don't think family were happy. <laughs> they were like, okay, that kind of stuff. You always get those questions. And for me, I was adamant. I'm gonna, I'm, I was working and doing it at the same time. Yeah. So you're working a full-time job. Yeah. I, was, I, was, I was in management at yeah. that time. And I was doing this part-time. Yeah. And um, for me, even at that point... I was thinking eventually I will write a book on it. I will write a book on it. I will write a book on it. So I was reinforcing myself in terms of what I do in the future at this early stage. But in terms of funding, it's always been the case. We've lacked, seek resources to help people um, achieve their dreams, actually have some kind of um, body of work, for instance. We're really big on terms of um, seva. We're really big on terms of actually what the Gurdwara movement has done, mm. but we lack still that kind of um, that bridge building where we can actually give resources to individuals to actually you know promote Sikh art, Sikh heritage, Sikh technology, yeah. that kind of stuff. We've become very very big as a community, not just in the UK around the world, but we still lack that kind of pot where someone can say, look, I want to research this. Can you give me fifty thousand pounds? Yeah. Even the think of fifty thousand pounds, people start crumbling. Fifty thousand is a minimum. <laughs> yeah, fifty thousand minimum. We should be looking at pops of five hundred thousand pounds being given to individuals to start and work on certain things, which will help promote mm. our sikhi. Those never existed then. They yeah. don't exist now. Yeah. They do exist in terms of philanthropists who you know do fund certain things, but. For me, it was always a case of, well, I'm going to have to do it myself. Yeah. And I never looked back because I always thought, well, okay, if no one else is going to do it, I'm going to do it. Yeah. 
So what university did you go to? What did you, you know, you so, talked about any... Yeah, so basically, because um, I'd come back to, in, uh, sorry, Leicester, and um, what happened was I enrolled at De Montfort University yeah. because there was no seat courses. Yeah. There was no seat courses where you could actually apply to do a, you know, BSC or whatever in in seat studies. So what happened was there was a course which allowed you to actually bolt on things. So there was this South Asian religions course. Yeah. So the, via that route, I could actually you know work on the Dasam Grant as part of my dissertation via that title. Mm. So again, the interesting thing was. I learned about Buddhism, um, some of the, again the Chinese religions which I mentioned about Taoism, Buddhism, Buddhism, um, Islam, and then I was able to incorporate the research techniques for that within the work I was doing on the Dasam Grant as well. So it was here in Leicester. All the research was generally done in Leicester, via but via archives across the world and things like that as well. So Dwarf University, what did they say to you when you first went there? This is my idea. Yeah, I mean, um, luckily for me, the supervisor, uh, well, the actual person who was the supervisor of the department actually liked the idea. Okay. Because he said, we haven't really been approached uh, <laughs> at all ever um, in terms of the work you're doing. So yeah. he goes, I just have to f- find an appropriate supervisor, yeah. but we have no issue with you actually doing this because we think it'd be, it'd be a great idea, especially on Sikh studies and yeah. Sikh history, because we don't generally get many people who um, who work in this area. So they were pretty actually kind of responsive to it, which, yeah. I've, again, you'd find strange because otherwise it's... Maybe other people may have talked them down, but I think the individual who 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 was the supervisor of the course, he'd already worked on on India itself, if yeah. that makes sense. So he kind of had an inclination that you know something novel like this would be important and just be uh, contribute to the field of education essentially. Yeah. Um, and after that, because I'm not going focus on this as much, but out of this studying, during mm. that time when you were studying this course mm. under the university, is there anything prominent that comes to your mind that you remember that, you know, did you have access to to things through the university that you wouldn't have access to if you'd done the research on your own? I think, like I mentioned, you have access to things like uh, digital archives, yeah. okay, but they were at their infancy at that time. Yeah, of course, there were microfiche, the, right? There, yeah, so. there's, there's lots of things with microfiche, um, so other things, the archives were there, but a lot of things hadn't been digitised or hadn't been put onto the systems, if mm. you can call it that. So there was always that lack of information available. Yeah. And as I mentioned, the internet was at its infancy. Yeah. I remember going on to studying um, as a, a module and it was like how to search the internet. This is right. Well, right yeah, we were in mm. Montfort Uni, yeah, ninety seven, ninety eight, yeah. where they had the four computers only that yeah, could yeah, link yeah. onto the internet. That's it. That's all they in terms of how things would actually now change for life. So I'm glad I was actually riding that wave in terms of how I would be researching history in the in the future. Mm. But in saying that, I've always considered myself a field scholar. So I'd, as part of this journey, I'd also gone to India as well, okay. um, just to do just to contact a few people. I didn't know that many people at that time, so it was very limited as to who 
who I spoke to at that time. But yeah. later on, I would realise that unless you're actually going out there in the field, when I mean the field, literally in the field sometimes, whether it was um, researching the Anglo-Sikh war battlefields, for instance, mm -hmm. whether I'm actually um, researching Havilia for, in terms of Sikh missiles, for instance, or anything, it's really, really important that whilst we do have repositories of information, archives, mm. we still, all scholars should go back to the idea of visiting places, you know, visiting Havilia, Gudware, other locations, because that's which gives us the one-up yeah. in terms of, because our history is in the Punjab, yeah? yeah? You can find history in the books, you can find history in archives, but you have to be there, you speak to people. Yeah. Speaking to people, listening to people's memories, people's understanding, imparts your way of thinking so was that so you've gone mm. like you said you've gone into the fields itself you've gone into mm. oh, into india is there a prominent thing that you found on your research whether that's some growth at the time at in, the, india? in india it was more superficial when i made yeah. it superficial it was like general information yeah. a lot of it was very very general in terms because at that time like i said in the 90s you was you started getting you well you already had that kind of um, clash going on, yeah, yeah. if that makes sense. So you had an issue in terms of people not wanting to share information. Okay. People didn't realise if you were pro or anti, so yeah. they were splitting you yeah. up. So they were not as forthcoming as to share information because it was like, well, what's going to happen with this information? Some of the people who had proudly had surups, for instance, were, yeah. were, now, were being guarded yeah. because... They just thought, is someone going to come in? Are they going to take what I've got? Or desecrated yeah, or whatever, yeah. Et cetera, et So, and that's an important point because, you know, we talk about Bedbi and we talk about things which happen, yeah. but it was happening also at that particular time because of the fact that people were against the Dasam yeah, and Sab. Yeah. So, therefore, they just wanted it removed well, from places. It's basically what was happening yeah. with the Ragamara for 100 years. Exactly. Now, yeah, exactly. Then, yeah. So, and interestingly, I mean, obviously, nineteen eighty four played a part. Is like when there was a mindset in people's thinking. Yeah. Um, but in the nineties as well, there was like another wave of you know um, bias against Maharaj Bani, mm. which um, you could see, and it was getting vociferous. So through the nineteen nineties to the two thousands, um, it was it was like almost a war was taking place. Yeah. And you know there were people saying that the Sikh Gom is going to have schisms in it, mm. like uh, you know very a number of tharams have had, and it was getting to the point. Luckily, Apa I think yeah. when we come, if we look at it in the as a conclusion, yeah. we were a bit lucky because bit by bit, people started to calm down again. But going back to your question, I think um, the information on the main parts of the Dasamrat came after my dissertation. Okay. Yeah. So there isn't anything that stands out to you that you thought when you got there, you were just like, that, that is definitely, I need that for a piece of work. Well, there was, it was more a case of like um, the actual research work that had already taken place, like yeah. uh, Professor Badham, like I said. Um, yeah, that you uh, could work off their the work. Ashtar, and then putting their theories together, if that makes sense, because yeah. that gave a framework. So because they were separated out, so when we talk about Guru Gobind Singh Maharaj, and we talk about then his history, yeah. and then we talk about the Bani, yeah. The, the information was scattered in various places. Yeah. The idea was to actually have a starting point where we could start bringing these sources together and then we could start... So that, for me, was, that, like I said, the starting point of bringing sources together 
where we could now start to actually plug away at actually having a history and compilation yeah. of the Silly Dustin Brown song. No, it's awesome. Well, that, that goes on to my, the next question, which is tell me how that led to your books with Gomer Robson. Because you ended up bringing two Dustin Grant books out with Gomer Robson. Yeah. How did you go from your studies upon the Dustin Grant yeah. to all of a sudden creating the book with the Archimedes Press and then later on with the Oxford? So, finish in 2001, the dissertation is done. Um, The interesting thing is, we talk about technology and and all the work I've done in technology since then as well. But interestingly, I'd actually created my own website. I'd done it myself. I'd put my dissertation online, (laughs) which is a very novel thing to do. This is circa around 2001. And it caught the eye of a few people in India. People like Gajaran... Jit uh, Lamba, for yeah, instance, yeah. and he actually um, was the editor of the Sansabai at that time. Yeah. And we got talking, and he said, can you contribute a few articles to um, to the magazine, yeah. which I did, which is novel because the majority of everything was in Punjabi, but he goes, if you want to do it in English, I said, fair enough then. So my contribution was the only contribution in English in a magazine which used to be spread all across Punjab, mm. you know, was endorsed by the Akal Taksab and the SGPC as well and it was now reaching a new audience if Mm. that makes sense so that was the next kind of trajectory of where Makam was going so those kind of articles were things like um, looking at John Malcolm for instance the English perspective on the Dasam Granth so the sketch of the Sikhs what does he say about the Dasam Granth and then also Charles Wilkins when he visited uh, Patanasab and how he viewed the Dasam Granth. And these were really important factors because they looked at Dasam Granth from a different perspective from, say, how Apaneban they were looking at it. Yeah. So it was it was adding to the body of knowledge. It wasn't the end or be-all, but I wanted to just write about something different. Remember, this is different from... Whilst there were snippets of that in my dissertation, yeah. this was now like five, ten-page essays now, literally going to the crux of manuscripts as well. So in the Patanasab essay, for instance, I talk about uh, the 1698 uh, Dasam Granth for instance, yeah. and then now I'm going into more the manuscript side um, of the Dasam Granth And there's other articles as well, like the Bajita Natak and so forth and so forth. So that had now kind of led me to work a lot more privately now after the dissertation work more on articles for instance look more into the surups for instance and then i think it was about i can't remember the year had to be midway might have been 2005 might have been earlier might have been later i can't remember off of of hand um met in with kamarup singh as well now kamarup singh was already Researching the city doesn't run up as well independently. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, um, he was doing it when I was at uni, right? yeah. Let so, that. so when we talked 99, he was already doing it, yeah. Then. So, the, he, the work he was doing independently himself, then eventually he would then go on to um, enlist to do his PhD on the Dutton Run. Yeah. But what we always said was that we rather than both of us do our work independently because one, it was a complicated um, subject. Yeah. B, there was no reason why we should reinvent the wheel, but combine our resources together to actually create a couple of publications. Yeah. So the interesting thing was he came from the subject differently. Yeah. I came from it differently, but then we merged our ideas together. Yeah. And as 
two bra, we would also disagree on things as well. Yeah, mm-hmm. as all families do. Mm-hmm. Uh, but at the same time, I think the combination of his skills and my skills were complementary. Mm-hmm. And I can give you examples of that. So originally, the the grant of Guru Gobind Singh Qatav was supposed to come out first. Okay, yeah, yeah, I remember. <laughs> that was supposed to come out first. Yeah. But with the process with Oxford University, it takes a number of years. Yeah. So in the meantime, we wrote the Siri Dasamra question and answers first mm. because we thought let's do the primer first because the primer would give people a great introduction. So 50 questions, 50 answers yeah. was really important to get people on that kind of level to actually kind of A, dispel myths, but also delve into history. Yeah. The... The Grant of Guru Gobind Singh was this academic piece of work where we combined these resources together. Yeah. And the reason it was successful in the sense that how we could pull these resources together was his gum was quite considerable on linguistics. Yeah. Okay. So understand the language. This is when people always say to me, well, when did you learn or when did you start working on sleep relics and artifacts? Mm. For me, it was always, all right, we have the manuscripts. Yeah. We want to kind of elaborate on the prane surups and what they entail. But one factor which people had always forgotten about is how is Gurbani or Bani disseminated? When yeah. I mean disseminated, we talk about, we go to the Gudwara or the Dharamsala at the time, yeah. and you know you hear the part. But how is Bani really disseminated in the real world at that time? In the in the guru okay, yeah. in the guru period and even the time of Guru Gobind Singh. Yeah. Jeez. So that's when I started looking at things like the Jarena yeah, yeah. of Guru Gobind Singh, when we have the Bani inscribed on a on relics, on, on relics, worn, yeah. on relics yeah. and artifacts. And this was very novel because no one was looking at that. There was it was in isolation again. So when I talked about bringing all the material together on the, on Dasam Granth Sahib, it was not just language, mm. the sarups, um, the ityas from the 18th century. I wanted to do something more in terms of the relics and the artefacts, so we brought that into the mix as well. Because I always was found... that included in the book? Yes, it's in included. Yeah, in the Oxford book, there's a whole... General so how, how do you and Gamaru go? We want to do a book together. Mm. What's it going to incorporate? Well, interestingly... Because I remember being sat here with you when you were yeah, doing it. Yeah, And I remember Comrade's translations being sat there and you yeah. were going through them. Yeah. And he was going through your bits. Yeah. It, it, so it, how did you come up to that? So the idea was um, he concentrated much more on the translation yeah. side. I concentrated much more on the history side, but yeah. that's not saying he didn't contribute, because obviously he did contribute yeah. on it, but that's where his... For he wanted to get the translations... Yeah. Of certain Barnia which were excised. Yeah. So he and I said that's great because what we could do he what we could do is we could just do the same old translations. Yeah. Um it's it's good, but why don't we do something novel? So the whole book was novel in the sense that it's some is presenting something new. So the translations were important, but I wanted to bring in like the history in terms of the relics, for instance, as well. Yeah. So the sroops in conjunction with the relics, and then that gives you a trajectory. Because when you have something tangible, yeah. I'm not just talking about the jarena, yeah. we also brought in things like tamar patre, yeah. 
Yeah. is the old copper plates, yeah. for instance, which um, have always existed in India, Pakistan, but people didn't know how to actually kind of, what's the word, um, how to actually kind of interpret them. Yeah. So my work was looking also on, well, if we have a tamapatra, what's the purpose of that? Yeah. Why would Guru Sahib give that? Why would he give that to Hindu pundits as well? Let's bring another level of intellectual um, um, research into this as well. Why is he giving it to the Hindus, not to Apne So it's all these kind of concepts which came to play. Yeah. And then we start looking at the swords of Guru Sahib. Have they been inscribed with Das and Bani? So we start building this level of information which previously people weren't looking at. So I wanted to add that into the mix. So in terms of the work itself, Gumarut would work on a chapter, I would work on a chapter, then we would swap it around. Yeah. Then we essentially were editing our own yeah, work. That's what you're doing. We were editing our own work, it's, essentially. Um, what do yeah. we call it? I can't even remember what we call it, but it worked. Mm. we have to do that. Mm. So in order for something to go to court, somebody else has to assess it. Yeah. Make sure it's all... Yeah. And it's really interesting because we were very vigorous. Yeah. He'd be very critical of mine. I'd be critical of him, mm. of him, of his work. He'd be critical of my work. And that was really important in order to make a very polished, yeah. polished kadav uh, at the end of the day. And yeah. I think it was a painful process because he's critiquing my work, I'm critiquing his, but then you come up to a point mm. where it becomes as perfect as it can get. Yeah. It's a very, maybe a strange way of doing it, but it worked out well in the end. And mm. I think that's the beauty of it when two people are working. And remember, remotely as well. Yeah, yeah. So um, you're not working... I you're emailing stuff yeah, to each other at the time. That's, all the, that's what it was. Absolutely. And so you're emailing things mm. and then you're getting things back and then things are lost in translation, literally. Mm. But it was, I think, when we got to the end of this process, um, mm. it was something which we believed was a really... In fact... I'll tell you a little story about this as well. We were given a, a, um, um, num- the word count, for instance, was supposed to be X amount of ma- words or something. <laughs> Me and Kumarup wrote so much, yeah. it went well off the radar. Yeah. And when we presented the book to Oxford University, they were like, you're about 100,000 or 50,000 words over the count. Yeah. And we were scratching our heads and we were thinking we did all this gum and now we're going to have to take this out. Yeah. So just between yourselves and the people who are watching this podcast, mm. there's a lot of material me and Gumaru did not put in that book, which is still out there and has never been released. So how did you even approach Oxford? So my cash was always... Because there's going to be other people out there that yeah. does a lot of research now, mm. going, well, how do I get my yeah. book to that level? Well, my cash was always this. If there is this kind of dilemma if there's this kind of war going on between pro and anti dasam grant your gum or our gum has to be at, at its highest level okay. we could have self-published this work which you know through Archimedes we did the um, the the question and answers book yeah. but this had to be at its highest level so it would remain in place for decades to come okay. so we just literally emailed Oxford University and said, "What's how do we put a proposal through? Yeah. And it was simple as that. Our proposal was very, very watertight. Yeah. We'd, we'd explained that our gum was going to be very um, unique. Okay. None of the information had been published. Well, 
a lot of the information had been published before. Mm. So very honest about it, but at the same time, we knew we had a great project on our hands. Mm. So eventually, they yeah, they actually said yes, we would. Some this is a book that we want to actually want to um, publish. But the key point in this, like you mentioned, for newcomers is it can be a long process. It's not simply contacting them and then you get a response back after a week. You would get responses back after a month, month and a half, and so forth and so forth. Even when we had our first draft, yeah. it took months before it was sent to reviewers and then to get the comments back and then to work on it again. Mm. Because a peer review approach, a yeah, peer review approach is lengthy. Yeah, and if you're not prepared to kind of hang in there, you know, it, this is not the work for you. So the the main, I think it's got better. I think it's got better in terms of, you know, the work does come back to you quicker these days from these bigger institutions. Mm. But it was always that case of frustration as well. Mm. You're not getting it back so you can work on it and then you can finish it off. So so what was the process? Tell me the process rather than just going, mm. we sent off an email. What do you do? So you, you literally, you would email Oxford University. Yep. They would then say, okay, um, you would need to fill out a form. Yeah. The form is like um, actually stating why your book is novel. Most publishers do this anyway. Yeah. Why is your book um, important? Mm. And that's it. You, you put in a, your, your chapters that you want to work on. Mm. Um, you put in footnotes. You put in some bibliography in as well. Yeah. You put in why you think this book will actually be an important body of work. Yeah. So unless you've got all these things before you're actually applying then you're not going to get off the kind of, you know, you're not going to get the, the foot on the ground, essentially. Yeah. So whenever you have a great idea, it's the backup which comes along with it as well. Mm. It's not just what you're going to be writing, it's how you're supporting this book in terms of making sure it's going to be received well as well. So the form gets sent, then we don't hear anything for some time. Yeah. Then we get an email back saying they want to consider it further. Yeah. And then you get this... Backwards, to, and, forwards, backwards yeah. and forwards until a contract is actually signed but we had an actual other problem as well we were actually in the middle of our book and the commissioning editor left yeah so again that was another six eight months before our book then restarted again yeah. and that was a bit of again that was a certain delay in the process as well because what the commissioning editor does he has to ensure that you know from start to finish the book gets done but when someone leaves then it, it kind of had a bit of a dent in terms of our getting the book done quickly, really. Yeah. What was the cost implications? Well, cost implications is, again, it was absorbed uh, by myself mm. and Kumarup Singh. We didn't get any funding for any of the work. Okay. Um, I think Kumarup got... And I think that's what people want to know. Yeah. We, there was no funding for this. No one said, here's £500, go to India, do a bit of research. Gumru mm. um, might have got some funding for his PhD, from what I remember, but very minimal, mm. uh, which may have contributed to the, our body of work. But again, own resources, own money, yeah. going into this, spending... If you think about it from 2001 yeah. to where we are in terms of when the... Sorry, 2001, where the book came out, 2011. Yeah. A lot of the work, a lot of the research, you know, was just done and paid for by ourselves, yeah. essentially. And quite rightly, um, 
you know, we could have done with funding to get this project done because it took hours and hours and hours of work yeah. to get it to where we wanted to get to, if that makes sense. And you will never get that time back, but it's not that. It's not about the, it's not about the hours which are a issue. Yeah. It's the actual fact that, um, like you said now, so many years later, people can now see the kind of come the work taken in order to actually achieve this, yeah. the research taken to achieve this, and, you know, what cost as well. Cost, in when I mean cost, it's always the opportunity cost. Could I have been on a higher ladder through my work, for instance, yeah. where I was actually concentrating more on this? Could I have achieved other things outside of this? Yeah. You know, there's always going to be that cost, cost to your family where you're not actually available to do things. Yeah but spending more time on this, for instance. So there's always a cost, but... What was the cost on just getting the book released? Not your personal cost, as in just getting an ISBN, getting a hard co- hardback cover, picking how much it's going to cost, how many copies you want. What was that sort of cost like? Or was that done... That was done through the publisher. The publisher would actually kind of determine all those kind of things. Okay. We don't see that because they're... So just to kind of... Um, put down different concepts of publishing as well. So mm. you've got things like self-publishing, yeah. where you publish yourself. You know how yeah, the concept... Yeah, of, you, you know the concept of self-publishing. Yeah. You'd you'd go through um, a publisher or you can do it online yeah. and you actually put your money in. You decide how many copies you want. Yeah. With the higher publishers, once you've got a contract, they do everything. Okay. So you don't have to contribute towards that. You do contribute towards images for instance so yeah. if you want to actually pay for images you would have to do that yourself yeah. you'd pay for that and then you would have to confirm that you've got the copyright to include into the book so you, there'd be cost for images for instance okay. things like that yeah so that's fine so you didn't have to go because there's some publishers that go yeah we'll, we'll do your book but it's going to mm-hmm. cost you six grand yeah exactly it's going to cost you this much. but this is the difference you see there's a difference between vanity publishing self-publishing yeah. and I would call Proper publishing. Proper publishing is when you've had a contract from a publisher where your work has actually... You, there's no Technically, there's no cost to yourself from the yeah. publishing aspect, but that hides the research costs. That research... That they hides yeah, the... You say that, you, but you've just given three different types of publishers. Mm. Tell me where their research costs are. Because it hides theirs as well. No, no, it hides yeah. there. But what I'm saying is in totality, if that makes sense. If you're looking at it from total costs, if yeah. that makes sense, you know, you've got those costs are kind of paid for because yeah. you, don't, you don't have to worry about that. Yeah. And that was the reason why we wanted to go with Oxford in the first place, yeah. if that makes sense. So you ask the question, why go for the biggest, yeah. uh, one of the biggest publishers, because then that would all be catered for, yeah. if that makes sense. But it was a longer process yeah. and a difficult process but it did cover that aspect of it, if yeah. that makes sense. So yeah. the payments sold on all the books yeah. are covered, everything's on yeah. That's right. So you didn't even have to pay for an ISBN or anything like that? Everything's covered through publishing? Yeah, everything's all covered, yeah. No, that's awesome. No, that's not a problem. From there, obviously you've, you've talked about how you've gone about putting this together. There's a big gap between book one and book two. But between that, one of the things that I came to see you about was you working on Dr. Layden's works. Mm. Now, a lot of people don't know who Dr. Layden was mm. or what his works are. Yeah, yeah. Um, you've put out a small publication on that and you've got a website on that as well. Mm. Can you talk about how you found the works of Dr. Layden? Who is Dr. Layden and what mm. are these works? Yeah. So, 
as I mentioned at the start, um, I'd already been looking at British sources on Sikh history anyway. And those sources were things like John Malcolm, Sketches of Sikhs, yeah. and talked about Charles Wilkins as well and his visit to Patna Sahib. But within John Malcolm's work, The Sketches yeah. of Sikhs, he gives citations of where he's found certain Sikh texts from. Yeah. So he talks about things like Sikhande Bhagat Mala, he talks about the Bajit Natak, obviously, because he's talking about Guru Sahib. But then he's also stating that he got the translations from A1 Dr. Layden, okay. Dr. John Layden. Mm. After doing a little bit of research, you find out that Dr. John Layden was someone who was based in Scotland. Yep. He'd actually was a Christian minister and then he'd gone out to India. Yeah. And then when he'd gone out to India, he'd, you know, became part of a translation school in Calcutta, yeah, yeah. or Kolkata, we call it now. And he'd started, he was, he was a person who just translated work. It could be anything, he would translate it. He was a linguist personified, essentially. So when he's in India, he's learning all the different langu languages, um, Hindi, Marathi and Punjabi as well. Mm. And somehow, and this is where we don't know, he had got a manuscript of Sikh texts. Yeah. So we look at Calcutta over here, yeah. the Punjab over there. Yeah. Um, and he managed to actually um, translate a number of texts. Mm. And these texts were the Sri Bajita Natak, um, included the Prem Sumarag Granth. Yeah. And these are very novel and interesting texts, as we all know. But for him to do those ones was really, really peculiar. There's texts like the Kurka, for instance, which is a um, a discussion on Guru Sahib and, and the Shabzadde, for instance. And there's certain portions of Sikhandi Bhagat Mala as well. Yeah. And, and so forth and so forth. So I'd kind of come across the fact that these translations were already in the British Library. Okay. So certain texts had already... How did you figure out they were there? Because it's only mentioned within his book. But... It was mentioned within yeah. his book, but I think um, in the work that Paramjit Singh and Amandeep yeah. Madhra did, yeah. they kind of mention it briefly, <coughs> yeah, so if that makes yeah. sense. Yeah. They mention it briefly, but they didn't actually go into... In six it, Sikhs and Tigers. Yeah, yeah. yeah, they didn't go into it in depth. So I would actually went to the British Library and procured the translations. Mm. Um, I'd spoken to them about it as well. Mm. And and I thought to myself, there's got to be more than what's already there. Yeah. So that in itself was a great body of knowledge. But then I started digging deeper and started looking at individuals who may have brought these texts back to England. Yeah. And I came across a name by the name of Mackenzie. Okay. And Mackenzie was the collection in which the works of Dr. Layden were. Yeah. Okay? So the Mackenzie collection. Okay. So... Searching under Mackenzie, I found out that there is something turned up called Brem Samara Grant. Yeah. And that's it. That's when I hit the nail on the head. And I actually found the manuscripts related to that. Went to the British Library, found it, and I was gobsmacked. Because mm. you had two different versions as well. You had the correct version, you had the incorrect version, and you had a little a translation of the Jarp Saab as well. 
Okay. Just a very small portion of it as well. What so, do you mean correct version and incorrect version? So basically it's ones with mistakes in it which has been okay. corrected and then obviously the real version. And interesting, they were all put together. Okay. And the interesting thing so is... So it's basically like a draft on file. A draft, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. But all still there together. Yeah. So the importance of John Layden in its totality was the fact that he was... Previous to that, it was always suggested that we had people like Cunningham was the first Sikh translator. Then after Cunningham, we had other people as well. And it was becoming a point where this was now going to challenge people as to the texts of the Sikhs yeah. had been looked at, had been studied by the British a lot earlier. Yeah. So this was where the challenge was now going to actually change the whole Sikh world in terms of looking at where we present Sikh history, especially from the British point of view or the colonial point of view, if yeah. we can call it that. So Leyden's translations were a absolutely kind of belter, if I can use that word, mm. is a British word, belter, in terms of where Sikh history could now be repositioned. It repositioned in terms of the time when the British were working on the text, yeah. but also shedding light on history of our Punjabi texts as well. Okay. So, positioning in terms of we now can place Dr. Layden as being the first. Who, there would have been other people who would translate Sikh text, yeah, but very, course. very in small portions. It's the first that you've got, we can put our hands on, isn't it? We can put our hands on, but more importantly, and this is the important bit, was as Dr. Layden was a translator, he wasn't like Ernest Trump. Yeah. So when Ernest Trump did his translations of the Guru Granth Sahib, yeah. and he tried to do it on the Siddhi Dasam Granth Sahib, yeah. his work was actually labelled as being incorrect. He had a lot of deficiencies, mm. for instance, even though he was considered a linguist. Yeah. But Dr. Layden was, like I mentioned, a linguist par excellence. And therefore, his translations, uh, his translations, personally, this is a personal thing, you may disagree. No, no, it's not yeah, that. Yeah. There's a very big difference between translating mm. the Dasan Barney to Sri Guru Granth Sahib's yeah. Barney. Yeah, yeah. Sri Guru Granth Sahib's Barney is not about the word-for-word -word translation because mm. a lot of it, yeah. all of it, is intrinsic. Yeah, yeah. Dasan Granth is not intrinsic. No, no, no. Dasan Granth, this is why you look at a Dika on the Dasan Granth to mm. Dika just the Jabji Sahib. Absolutely. The Jabji Sahib is massive. Absolutely. You're, you know, yeah. the Jab Sahib is... Extended, mm. that's about the only one, but then after that, yeah, there are no intrinsic meanings. Absolutely. After that, you know, yeah. you, you, there might be like a an intrinsic mm. sort of meaning for some of the truthers, but that's explained within yeah. the works itself, mm. so you don't have to delve into it. It's very different. So, what Ernest Trump was doing was obviously translating, but he was translating the product, he was translating word for word what the word means. Mm. But it doesn't actually give an insight to what Gurbani is stating. But he actually says as well, yeah. he actually says yeah. he finds it difficult. Yeah. And then what he does, he contacts the British and says, I want more money. Yeah. And in the end, because he can't understand it, yeah. he gives up the project entirely. Which is, which is, because that's, <laughs> yeah. that's a difference yeah. between Sudan mm. and Sudan, every other text. Mm. Even when you read the Quran, the Quran's got the Zahid mm. and the Batan, those are yeah. the two things. So Gurbani has exactly the same, but Absolutely. the Dasan doesn't. So mm. the Dasan, to certain points, has intrinsic meanings. Mm -hmm. It's not all the way through. Yeah. Gurbani is, that's why they say it's a guard board. It's beyond mm. comprehension. Absolutely. 
Um, mm. And I can understand why it was easier for Leiden to translate the Dassel mm. than it was for Trump yeah. to translate the Gurdjieff. Yeah. But but this is but that, that that's entirely true. Yeah. But the but the truth also comes in the fact that this was like 50, 60 years before Trump. Yeah. And that's important as well. Yeah, yeah, it's yeah. the time period as well. Yeah. It's like the early 1800s, yeah. okay? He's circa, let's say, 1805, 1808 is when he's doing this gum. Yeah. And it's like a very early period as well. Yeah. And then remember, this is the time when in the Punjab, yeah. Maharaja Ranjit Singh is now coming into his... He's ascended the throne, yeah. um, has become Maharaja Punjab. And he, his gum... And there's very little contact with the British at that particular point as well, from the Punjab at yeah. that point. So for Leiden to have done this in isolation in Calcutta, maybe he had got a little bit of support from... Now, there's a concept on maybe Nirmali may have helped, etc., with his translation, mm. whatever. But the accuracy, when he used the word Sriyagal Burk, for instance, you know, you can actually see it in the, in the concepts, in the translations as well. Yeah. So its accuracy is important as well as translation. So for me, Dr. Leyden was not just um, the first... But accuracy-wise, it was a lot more than maybe the later commentators yeah. were able to do or comprehend, if that makes sense. So yeah. I think the body of work that Leiden has left us is absolutely extraordinary. So therefore, we had to do a project on it. Yeah, yeah. Later, did a, did a small booklet on it. And in the recent book, The British and the Sikhs, mm. I've devoted a chapter on Dr. Leiden as well. Yeah. But I think there's more that needs to be done. Yeah, in terms of actually bringing that work out because it's so pivotal yeah. to um, Punjab history, colonialism, translations. Yeah. So there's a whole lot of work which can still be carried on, which still needs to be done. Yeah, no, I totally understand. And I totally agree. Mm. There's, there's a whole work on, you know, mm. just if you were to put Leyden's works as he's written on his translations... Would be interesting because his concepts are pre, you know, pre-Victorian. Mm. The the wording he uses yeah. is different. Mm. If I was to look at it in a Gurbani sense, is his mm. translation accurate on the Bhagavatam? I'd say absolutely not. There's mm. lots of flaws. Yeah, but yeah. That was the only language he could use at the time because that's yeah. those are the words that were in place. Absolutely. So yeah. it isn't about an inaccuracy in translation. Mm. It's about that is the vocabulary that was available mm. to him. And I think I still think it's very important for that to come yeah, out. Absolutely. So, yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, I hope there's a project somewhere that you're going to do on that. Um, how see. did you go from? Obviously, I can I can see where where this is linking up. Obviously, you've done the dust and you've done the laden stuff. You're looking into research. How did you come about with the Sikh Museum? So, as I mentioned, we'd been doing a lot of work on Sikh relics and artifacts anyway. Yeah. So originally, as part of the work. I'd started on the Dasan front, like I mentioned, I wanted to look at seat relics and artifacts. Yeah. And over the decades, there was always, um, there was always me going out to museums, you know, the old idea being, you know, the Kursi of Maharaja Ranjit Singh at the Victoria and Albert yeah. Museum and so forth and so forth. So as part of, I mean, going back about just after the Dasan Granth Qatar had been finished, um, We'd been going out and about, just as other individuals now, working with different people to try and look at seat relics and artifacts. So around about 2014-15, mm. um, various members of our team got together and we wanted to actually have a organisation which could do exhibitions, lectures, 
but also now delve into new technologies as well. Mm-hmm. So this was a kind of break from what I'd been previously doing because now I'd be entering the world of technology as well. Mm-hmm. And this is groundbreaking because working with individuals like Taron, Jit Singh mm-hmm. from Taron 3D, it was merging history and technology. Yeah. And this is the important bit because we were now able to now say, okay, technology advances are now coming through. How do we now balance this in a world which is changing? Yeah. Look at the shift from the time when I started when there was no internet to where the internet is now fully fledged. We have social media as well. Yeah. So how can we actually portray Sikh history um, I mean, through the traditional routes as well, like lectures and exhibitions, but also incorporate digital technologies? Yeah. So the idea behind Sikh Museum Initiative was always about doing something, again, novel which I've always wanted to do throughout my career in Sikh history, is always to do something really novel. Mm. And so working... So the first project was the Anglo-Sikh Wars exhibition here in Leicester. And whilst I'd already tapped in, as a team, we'd tapped into various museums to get relics for the actual exhibition, we now work with Taran to actually work on 3D modelling of objects as well. So whether it's the Kohinoor diamond, for instance, maybe it was like a a dalvar which had been used by the Sikhs, a gun, i.e. the brown bess, which was used by both the Sikhs and the British. So to start modelling a few objects for this exhibition. So that was one technological innovation. The second was to use... um, AR card, kind of cards, basically. Yeah, augmented reality. Yeah, augmented reality, essentially. So what augmented reality does is if you can shine a kind of camera onto an object, it makes another object appear, essentially. Yeah. So that was novel, so you could play around with, like, objects as well. So this exhibition was not... Well, it was novel in the sense that no one had done an exhibition on the Anglo-Sikh wars since the wars had started in a major way. But then to incorporate technology into it was it kind of gave it a new kind of definition. So the Sikh Museum initiative was to kind of actually work predominantly with Sikh relics and artefacts on other themes as well. But just to give the UK a, a sense of where history needs to be kind of defined, especially when there's so much atyas which came from the Punjab to the UK. Yeah. It's a case of making sense of it. And that's the really easy answer. Mm-hmm. How do we make the sense of Sikh atyas which has come from the Punjab to the UK, yeah. and how can we do and make projects out of it? Yeah. I think that's the kind of easy answer as to what we're trying to do, and still trying to do as well. I was about to say, that's still running at the moment. It's, it's still, yeah, still still running. We've done uh, recently. So you've yeah. had that going for nearly, nearly eight years. Mm-hmm. What are your significant finds? I think uh, the finds has always been about um, the actual different amounts of tias which is here in the UK. Okay. Whereas probably before the 90s, sorry, not yet, in the 90s or just coming up to the 2000s, sorry, 2000s and then 2010, um, we always knew that there were seat relics and artefacts yeah. through various museums. But when we actually started delving and contacting various museums and in and other institutions, the amount of material which is now we can now actually see yeah. was a bit of an eye opener. Because we always knew that the Tias had come to, from the Punjab. Yeah. But let me just break this down a bit uh, for everyone listening on the podcast as well. 
there's different ways the Atias came to the UK. Yeah. One is, if we can use in inverted commas, the loot, if you yeah, can say that. From the Toshakana of Lahore Treasury, for instance, yeah. there was this idea that many items were brought back, uh, well, were taken by the British, essentially. Mm-hmm. So that was one concept. Then we have smaller regimental museums who'd fought in various wars as yeah. well, and they'd been able to pick things off the battlefield. Yeah. And they brought them back as well. There was also things, interestingly, which many people don't talk about, was gifting as well. So yeah. the Sikhs had gifted a lot of items to the British. This is during the time of Maharaja Ranjit Singh. Okay. So this this had already been started yeah. in the early 1800 period. So there was Etias, which came that way as well. People sometimes get confused and what, say... What, what prominent gifts have you found from that period? So that period was, there was Sikh manuscripts, for instance. Yeah. And these yeah. are in the British Library. A couple. Right. It was a couple. And there was also the canons as well. Yeah. So Sikh canons were given by the British. Yeah. And just to give you a really, really fascinating story on that as well, mm-hmm. the British had given canons to the, to the Sikhs. Yeah. And the Sikhs had improved on them, yeah, made them better. And then when they were using the Anglo-Sikh wars, they were, you know, yeah. done a lot better th- than the British had done when it came to the actual deploying of weaponry. But then the British captured them <laughs> back yeah. and then brought them or melted them down. So that gifting had also, was also taking place. Yeah. And then there was also the sale of items as well. Yeah, now, yeah. Interestingly, um, in the 18, late 1800s, or sorry, after... The Toshakana yeah. had brought brought back. There was also items which had been sold in Punjab as well. Yeah. And they got proliferated in around Punjab and various other locations as well. So we don't really know what happened to those items either. Yeah. So there's different facets of how items have actually arrived in the Punjab, if, as you can see just from what I've just said. Yeah. Um, there was further gifting as well in the late 1800s with the Maharajas of Punjab, where it's Maharaj of Kurputla, Patiala, Jeen, yeah, and all these other ones. The treasures of the yeah. empire, don't you? Where so, they, they gift them to um, Prince Albert. Yeah, who was, Edward. Yeah, when yeah, he, he goes yeah. There. So, yeah, so we had an exhibition here in Leicester. Yeah, yeah, Splendors of Yes, Splendors of Yeah, so in there, there was many, many Punjab items or Sikh items yeah. which the Maharajas had actually gifted. So overall, there's different shades of items which have come through over the years yeah. so when you say what's the most significant i think the whole the whole concept of the amount and the amount is really really important it's like they're, I, I agree they're, with that. they're everywhere i agree with that. Mm. but there's got to be some standout item for you mm. as there's always standout items yeah. in, in in the relics and artifacts yeah. um i don't like to always put pigeonhole and cite one example yeah, but if you don't cite them people are going to go well there ain't any yeah. And the whole yeah, point yeah. is about in creating intrigue and interest mm. in people. So if you sit there and hide things away... Oh, it's not about hiding. No, no, no. It's not about hiding. But if you can't even pick two or three out and go, mm. well, this is something... I, 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 I never pick out two yeah. or three. I always go with the general. The reason I go yeah. with the general is because if we... Concentrate. Let me give yeah. you as an example the Kohinoor diamond. Yeah, yeah. Let, let me give, let me explain why general sometimes is more important rather than specific. Yeah. Now we've got the Kohinoor diamond, for instance, yeah. and we know about the history and people love to talk about it all the time. I get asked 
more and more questions on the Kohinoor diamond than anything yeah. on Sikh history because they just love talking about this narrative. Yeah. And I have to push them away from that narrative and say, oh, by the way, did you know that there was also other Etias yeah. which, which had been taken by the British and yeah. just as important, for instance. But no, oh, no, you're quite right. I, there's no harm in actually kind of... I mean, yeah, it's just citing a couple of things. Yeah, so and, and, to go... Actually, I want to go and see that, or I didn't know that existed. But, but, For me, yeah. Right, I'll, I'll but, 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 but let me answer that question, actually. But as part of the anglo Seat Wars exhibition, I thought some really interesting thing was, like, the Koti. Yeah. So it was a Koti yeah. of not a seat general, but maybe of a child who may have been the son of a Raja, for instance. Yeah. The great embroidery that was actually employed on it, we actually had that on display. Yeah. And that's from the area of Worcester, for instance. Yeah. And, and that's the only one of its type in England. Yeah. That there does none exist like this in you know anywhere, yeah. if maybe not even in the Punjab, because the style of of clothing, as we know, with the innovations of the French and the Europeans who came into the court, actually brought about different kind of ways in which um, our clothing was changed yeah, course, as well. Um, so that's a very significant find, yeah. uh, which I thought was really really important. We. One important uh, shastar, yeah. because it's the stories I think which are important. It's exactly. not necessarily about if it's they got not gold. Monetary value of things like it's yeah. not that. It's yeah. about what. It's not about the monetary value. There's, mm. I'm going to quickly interject here. Yeah. But two items from yeah, yeah. your yeah, you know, from the Anglo Museum mm. first uh, thing that you did at mm. New York Houses. Yeah. So one was the Bhutisad that you found. At Leicester University. Okay, yeah, yeah. Because I'm like, well, yeah. how the hell have Leicester University got this? Yeah, yeah, right? yeah. So that for me was significant. Mm. The second thing for me that was significant was you had a Shasta that had been picked up from the, the battlefield. I'm going to talk about that. Right? That's what I want to talk so about. So that's another one. Yeah. The third one is not from that period at all. It is from something you've done very recently mm. where we had an item of the month at the museum. Okay. Which was the medal from Medals. the Chilean while of battle. Yeah, okay. Right? So that's... But then there's other items for me which are significant. Mm. Like, for me, the most significant thing out of all these things are the relics of Baba Maharaj Singh. Yeah, okay. Uh, you know, Nanga, mm. uh, by the way. So yeah. that's probably the most significant thing because you've got Gutka there, mm. which has got the Panjabani Yeah. Then all of a sudden you turn it and you've got Chanaka, Chanaka's works in there, mm. which obviously was by Kobi Sanapath, but it's within yeah. their daily nitha yeah. that they read yeah. every day. Yeah. So, so for me, that, that's what I mean. So if mm, you're not going to elaborate on any items, mm, people are going to go, well, I'm not learning anything. See, what it is is that um, when you've done so much work over a period of time, yeah. it unfortunately gets put into that kind of same pile. It's only someone like you who's coming today yeah. and asking about specific items that yeah. the memory gets jogged as yeah. to what's specific. But let me touch upon mm. um, the sword, for instance. Yeah. So you talked about this sword which is found in the battlefield. And I'll just elaborate on that yeah. because I found this story really, really fascinating. That was um, at the Battle of Aliwal, yeah. uh, First Anglo-Sikh War. And a Sikh, whose name we don't know, yeah. was fighting uh, one individual. He's a coronet. And um, they'd been fighting. Mm. And at the end of the day, they both got killed. Yeah. And the sword was lying over the Britisher. And eventually what the actual regiment did was they took the sword, they wrote the atyas as to what happened, yeah. and then actually on the sword itself, yeah. they inscribed what had actually taken place yeah. to leave a permanent record between the Sikh and, and, and the British in this particular battle. Mm. Very significant because, again, you don't often see that, you see. And that's kept in Nottingham. 
So that where, was very nice. Because that's not in the that's in a private collection, isn't it? No, no, it's an actual. It's it's a U U Munnery uh, Nottingham Museum actually. Okay. So that's it's an nice. it's an actual regimental museum, okay. where it came from essentially. So um, yeah, I thought that was from a private collection. That's for yeah. me. That's quite significant. Uh, yeah. Like, hang on, this no. is from the battle itself. It's yeah, and, and, it's, and, and I've included that in the British and the Sikhs book as well because yeah. I thought it was very, very significant. There's a photograph of that in the British and the Sikhs book. Yeah. Um, but just to go back to the also the Sikh manuscript as well. Yeah. Now, the interesting thing was when we were looking for um, ideas on Sikh manuscripts, um, to I'd already known about the manuscript at Leicester University for many years prior okay. the exhibition. But with me, it's always a case of you may know where such an important item might be, yeah. but unless I'm going to do some work on it, do I really need to go and see it? Yeah. Or do I need to elaborate on it? Or do I need to do X, Z and Y? With this project that was coming across, we got in contact with the University of Leicester, yeah. spoke to the special archives there, yeah. and we were able to do interpretation. And just to, just to kind of... Um, just to correct you a little bit in yeah. terms of what's in the poti, if that yeah. makes sense. So there's Banya from Guru Granth Sahib and the Siddhi Dasam Granth yeah. Sahib and there's um, some apocryphal compositions as well. Okay. So it is a larger poti. That's why I call it poti, because yeah, I knew it wasn't exactly. even yeah, yeah, yeah. It wasn't, yeah. It, I knew it was a compilation in the same way. Yeah. But, but interestingly, we talk about how the item had got into the UK. Okay. This was actually bought by an antiques dealer. Okay. Um, and this antiques dealer had been buying many books mm. and he'd gone around the world. So, again, it's not a stolen item as far as no. we know. He's just gone to a marketplace somewhere and he's brought it back to Leicester. He probably didn't know the super significance of it. It was displayed in the 1960s. Mm -hmm. That's the first time it was actually properly displayed in 1960. It was going to be used in a police case as well. So, you know, you know when they used to say do you want to take an oath on yeah, yeah, yeah. the bible or, or or scripture of your choice yeah. they were going to use it but then someone intervened and said this is not the Guru Granth Sahib yeah, exactly. so therefore you cannot use this in this police case um, there was some work done by SOAS as well and yeah. I looked at that work but for us it was more a case of looking at the significance of it in terms of um, it being an important part of you know the battles um of during the Anglo-Sikh wars. Yeah. So whilst we got the British history, we also looked at the Sikh history as well. And quite rightly, we worked with the university on two on several aspects. One was to actually create the, have a correct Muradda as well. So we had the Shastas, which were placed nicely against the Guru Sahib. We also had um, Ramallah yeah. brought in as well. So to make sure that we're giving, you know, the correct, yes, yeah, yeah, etc. And in a way, we tried to do it. Just, we did. I think yeah, I we did something different, which no other museum has ever done in yeah. the past in the UK to date. Yeah. Um, in the future, you know, people always have issues about whether we should have sroops in public institutions and public uh, locations. But we did the best we can working with the university. But no, also, I thought it was really well done. Oh, thank you. Really well done. But also, we wanted to make sure we didn't damage the sroop as well. So mm. we actually had. A cradle created yeah. from the Bodleian Library at Oxford, Oxford University yeah. to ensure that when the body is placed, yeah. 
it's placed in a way which it doesn't damage the sroop as well. Yeah. So we learnt a lot of things in terms of manuscript uh, conservation at the same time yeah. from the University of Leicester, and they learnt a lot of things in terms of how we view the Sikh scriptures and the history behind it as well. So it's been a great project, and we've you know we always work closely with that department um, yeah. now and in the future as well. No, that's awesome, Steve. Um... Right. How did you change your focus to research on different areas in relation to Sikhi or Sikh history? Yeah. I think the work from the Siri Dasam Granth Sahib was a bit unique and very different because that was a lot on manuscriptology. It was about the Atiyas from the 18th century and so forth. Yeah. Just coming up prior to the formation of the Sikh Museum Initiative as well, I'd always had that interest in um, the Sikh Empire. So the Sikh Empire was another area which I thought deserved attention. Together with that was the Anglo-Sikh Wars as well. Yeah. And it's really interesting because you can't really separate the two because the Anglo-Sikh Wars come off, comes off the back of the Sikh Empire. Yeah. So I wanted to concentrate originally on the Anglo-Sikh Wars because it would never been covered in detail before. Yeah. So therefore looking at the battlefields, um, looking at the Atiyas, looking at the Sikh relics which we just mentioned. Yeah. But then also um, making it palatable as well, because obviously there's a lot of people who don't want to talk about these things. A, because we lost our Punjab at that time. So, yeah. you know, it's a, it's a source of pain, for instance, just that partition um, has been as well. But the annexation of the Punjab had to have a starting point. But let me tell you the real reason why we looked at the Anglo-Sikh Wars for, for, as part of the exhibition. At that time there was a lot of work being done on the Great War. Yeah. Indians in the Great War, Sikhs in the Great War. But the problem when we have, okay, there's Bharti of Sikhs in the Indian Army, for instance, mm. they never gave any kind of um, background as to how they got there. Yeah. They never even talked about the Anglo-Sikh Wars. So it's a kind of bit saying, okay, well, that's great, and it's great that the, you know, the UK is looking at Sikhs' contribution to the your soldier and Sikh wars, and I'll come on to that later on as well for a future project we're working on. Um, but there's no background. So whilst everyone was concentrating on that, we said, let's just take people back 50, 60, 70 years and go to the Anglo-Sikh wars where people can actually learn and say, well, okay, Sikhs fought against the British, yeah. but then later on there was this recruitment um, policy later on. So therefore, the Anglo-Sikh wars was really pivotal, not just for Apanekam, but for the British as well to actually kind of actually understand about where we're coming from in terms of this annexation. And because the thing is, over the last you know decade or so, we're getting these conversations now about decolonization, for instance. Yeah. We're getting these conversations about uh, should artifacts be repatriated to various countries. Yeah. But so we were actually kind of looking at it differently by saying, okay, well, we've got these items here on display. Yeah. But also we're using technology now to bring things to life as well, which I mentioned about. So we want to do something different, something novel as well. So, you know, creating the Kohinoor diamond in 3D was absolutely, you know, a game changer, yeah, essentially. Yeah. And remember, not the Kohinoor diamond as... No, no, it was the, uncut, the, uncut the uncut version. and as it was um, on oh, the yeah. arm of Maharaja Ranjit Singh yeah. um, at the time. At the same time, we also had a replica of the Kohinoor as well, mm. which we got from, I think it was the museum in Shropshire, for instance. So to focus on different things like the Anglo-Sikh Wars and the Sikh Empire was always in my radar. But again, we needed a project in which to focus on. 
So essentially, the Anglo Sikh Wars was done as part of the Sikh Museum Initiative's um, exhibition. Then I also wanted to focus a lot more about the British and the Sikhs as well, which leads us on to the book, which I created in 2020. So the idea behind that was to look at all the various sources. See, I remember, I'm just breaking up there. Yeah. I remember you doing an exhibition mm. on Wellington Street, which had the two massive pictures of the uh, anglo Seat Wars. Yeah. Those the two big pictures. Yeah, okay, yes. I remember on the same day that we were doing that, mm. Hellion was selling their books there. Yes, yes, yes. I can remember you saying at the time, well, hang on. I can remember you talking to somebody at Hellion at the time, so I know... Mm. That was the starting point of it talking was, to Hellion, but was. you hadn't even come up with the idea of writing no, the book. No. It was from that talk with Hellion. Yeah. And then prior to you, well, prior to you even writing that, we had the LBC talk by Christopher Bryce mm. when he was releasing his yes. book. Yeah. It's interesting because Hellion, um, as a company, hadn't got many seat books on their kind of uh, portfolio, essentially. Yeah. Meeting uh, someone like Chris Bryce was important yeah. because uh, we got to become really good friends over the years. Yeah. Um, he had been working on Hugh Goff. Yeah, which so is Hugh Goff, a solid book. Yeah, yeah. a general um, in the anglo seat Wars. And mm. so he had already knew a little bit about the seat Wars and Sikh history. Yeah. But he wanted more a bigger contribution. So that's where this kind of um, liaison started with the to have a book on the British and the Sikhs. Mm. Now, as you know from the contents of the British and the Sikhs, some of the stuff I'd already previously written before, but repackaged. Mm. But with this time round, I wanted to actually kind of talk a lot more about the Sikh relics and artifacts, but also talk about the Sikh missiles as well. Mm. So this is the first time where I'm now bringing the missiles into additional work as well. Mm. And we'll talk about the missiles later on, but it was just to have a trajectory of when the British came to India and what was the kind of association relationships that took place, yeah. whether it's during the missile period, whether it's Ranjit Singh period, anglo Sikh wars, um, the Rajas of Punjab, going up to the employment of um, Sikhs in the Indian army. Yeah. So, But interestingly, on the cover, for instance, um, we don't have the British as, as such, but I've put Baba Bagheel Singh on the front. Yeah. And the reason for doing that was to actually say, well, okay... You talk about significant items. You've been in this interview. You're asking about significant information, and you, what's this relic? What's this piece of history which actually is something different? Yeah. The idea was to actually say that in 1783, when the Khalsa took over the um, Delhi, for instance, yeah. When we had Bagheel Singh entering Delhi, we have this impact on the British, which actually changes their focus and their vision of what the Sikhs are. Yeah. It was a pivotal moment. Um, so rather than actually say the British and the Sikhs, okay, let's have, um, let's describe or let's depict the Sikhs fighting in the British Indian Army, for instance, or um, the Anglo-Sikh Wars, I wanted to take it back to the 18th century yeah, yeah. and have Baba Bagheel Singh there because then what came about from the raids around Delhi and March 1783 was this idea that the British was now viewed the Sikhs differently and then we'll start dialogue with them. And this is well, well before the Sikh Empire. No, but this, this is mentioned straight within the Pantaprakash. That is what the Pantaprakash starts off with, where you get um, Captain Murray and all those others going, who are the Sikhs? Mm. Why is it they just come yeah. into Delhi every now and then and yeah. 
piss off every now and then, take yeah, whatever yeah, they want. Yeah, yeah. They don't even look after the rule, they just yeah, go. Yeah. Marauders, yeah, they're, plunderers, they're, they're just, bandits, they don't even plunder, yeah, they come yeah, in. Yeah, yeah. They come in, they stay for a bit, and then they just yeah, go. Yeah. It wasn't even, that they, it wasn't like Ahmed Shah Dali where they come and take slaves, they take mm. money, they take, they don't do that. They come and go, yeah. actually, we are, you know, Dilly's Dilly's one day rule for us that's fine yeah. but we can show that we can take this at any point yeah. Yeah. so even you know Ratha Zeng Pungu say basically this text comes about because of British saying well who are the Sikhs yeah. because they're asking the, the local mm. um, that are under the Pratans and the Mughals and they're giving a mm. false ideal of yeah. the Sikhs and he's yeah. trying to get that information to send it back to the British that's it here, here in London yeah it's, you're quite right, but this is going, you know, so when uh, Bungu's writing his mm. Bans Prakash, that's a certain period. Yeah, he's, he's yeah. writing it historically yeah. of what happened. Um, but but he, by that time, obviously, he's in Ludhiana, in, mm. and he's saying that, yeah. I'm saying this here. So obviously, yeah, that he, and he mentions all Bagheel Singh, all that. that that's, we're talking 70 years prior to that. But what's interesting is uh, Ratan Singh Bungu comes from the Gloria Singha missile as well, yeah, so he that's why he does emphasize quite a lot on Bagheel Singh, for instance. But um, but we'll talk about the missile period later. But in yeah, his, yeah, in his yeah. text, his focus is on literally mm. one or two missiles only, really. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You know, his mm. thing about Rai Singh, Shir, uh, mm. Mithab Singh, Sukha Singh. Yeah. You know, Bagheel Singh. He mm. talks about one missile. He, he puts a focus on the missiles, mm. but he doesn't really no. talk about them. No, he he is. He, he remember, he, a, he he says these are the stories I've heard. He gives from a defined aspect. That's what yeah, he says. As my father, grandfather, yeah. everyone he, has actually told him. That's what he says. I've yeah. heard these from Rising. Yeah. I've heard these from Subcussing. So yeah. that's where these come from. Yeah, yeah. Uh, and that's what he says. So he he gives. It's it's like the the approach of, he gives, a partial. Yes. view of, of uh, that yeah absolutely so like I said so for me the British and the Sikhs um, the concept was taking it earlier yeah. going back to like descriptions of Bandar Singh Bahadur you know going to the descriptions of Bagheel Singh going to the descriptions of Sikhs in Delhi that kind of thing so it want, I wanted to actually just scrap what we'd come up come up with before and start off earlier yeah. and then start and then now delve into this missile period essentially yeah. Where was your research for that? How did you come about that? Because yeah. that isn't as much as you had the museum initiative, you had mm. relics, you had other things. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Trying to put that into a rounded mm. book is a different thing altogether. It, this is harder because, in the sense that each chapter is like a book in itself, yeah. if that makes sense. So, um, some of the actual examples, like I said, I'd already known about, but it's more about describing it. So, let's just take examples of Charles Wilkins for instance which had already covered back in you know the Dasson period yeah. uh, that I'm working on um, in fact I'd actually taken out John Malcolm because he was such known about I'd taken him out completely but I'd actually added him in later on in the Sikh soldier book yeah. actually instead um, so there were some descriptions which we'd already had yeah. but still had to start from scratch in terms of actually redefining them reinterpreting them and adding and padding them out yeah. for the Qadav like I said, the missile period bit was unique because mm. there was like some sources which had never been published before. As an example, for instance, um, as part of the Gloria Singer missile, there was an individual called Bunga Singh yeah. uh, from a place called Danisar. And um, he'd abducted a British soldier. Yeah. And interestingly, my research actually led me to Scotland again. 
okay. same place as Dr. Layden. And he'd captured an individual by Captain Stewart. Okay. So when I actually did some more research and found out that the actual devil's documents lying in Scotland, mm. which actually tell you about Captain, um, sorry, Captain Stewart and Bunga Singh, I was mesmerised. So I contacted the archives in um, Perth yeah. and they sent me some material yeah. and one or two um, letters. Yeah. So we already knew that the letters existed, yeah. but to actually find them was a great find in itself. Yeah. And this got incorporated into the book as well. So the Ranjit Singh period, I'd concentrated on in terms of um, his life. The Anglo-Sikh Wars bit had already been researched as part of the exhibition. So I was able to bring that into the book. Yeah. The new chapter for me was more about the British Sikh recruitment, if that makes sense. How do Sikhs get recruited yeah. into the Indian Army? That was a bit novel for me. That wasn't really my area if that makes sense. So that I had to research quite a bit on that to actually kind of make it a kind of a fuller book, yeah. essentially. So from different sources, mm. using existing material, new material, yeah. to actually give a kind of great primer uh, of the relationship between the two groups. No, that's fine. Then how did he get about getting it published through Hellion? So like... Uh, Hellion, if people don't know, is they, they do mm, books on wars. Uh, any military, any arms and armour yeah. military. That, yeah. that is what their, their mm, forte is. Yeah. So how did you end up... I know you speak to Helen, but how yeah. does... So, like you mentioned, we'd, I'd got this relationship with uh, Chris Bryce at Helian, yeah. and we just got talking, and he said, would you like to create a book, or would you like to do it? But he didn't give me any title. I said, yeah. Um, I said, what would be great is for readers is to have this primer between the British and the Seas going through various decades of history. Yeah. So, once again, uh, put, a, um, put a proposal through, yeah. It was accepted, and the same process, the same as the Oxford one, yeah. it, it happened again. It was long overdue because 2050, sorry, 2015 is when the Siri Dasam Granth, sorry, the Granth of Guru Gobind came out, mm. and this came out in 2020. Yeah. So there was a bit of a bit of a gap um, between the publication um, of of the Qadavs, for instance. But um, it worked out really well because this brought in a new audience. Yeah for people who had never heard about me, never heard about my work, for instance. So it was great from that perspective. And it was good as well because people wanted to read something different from Grindr Singh as well. Mm -hmm. um, you know, they'd seen the work on the Dasam Granth and they'd known about the work I'd done on the anglo Sikh Wars in terms of the exhibition yeah. as part of the Sikh Museum Initiative. But now here was something a bit more concrete in written form as well. Yeah. No, it's awesome. And that leads on to your latest book that you've released. So... You've gone from the British and Sikhs, mm. then what comes into your mindset in order to create the next book? Well, interestingly, um, some of the research which was for that book got put into the second book as well. Okay. And sometimes this is the thing about some writers. I mean, especially when I'm doing research, um, information would get included in the first book. Then I thought, you know what, there will be things which I can maybe uh, write about later on. Yeah. At that point, there was no discussion with Hellion of doing a second book. Okay. So, you know, there's always a risk if you don't include something in, in, in a book as well. So, but luckily for me, once the, the British and Sikhs had got great reviews, um, they was, it was a no-brainer for them. They were like, yeah, we want you to do a second book. Mm -hmm. And I said, shall I do a part two? They said, no, do slightly different. So therefore, yeah. what I did was I did the rise of the Sikh soldier, the concept being here. Mm. Um, how do the Sikhs become a martial tradition? So yeah. I start off 
talking about the guru tradition in terms of you know Sansabai, Miribiri mm. as an introduction and I also talk about the missile period as well but what I really want to um, kind of allay to Apne Bande and British, British uh, people here in England as well is that when we get to the 1800s and there's this idea of the um, what do you call it the um, this, the martial theory mm. yeah the, the martial concept and um, having Sikhs as a martial tradition yeah. I wanted to challenge that concept as well because the Sikhs were always martial yeah. from the time of Guru Nanak he was cha- challenging oppression tyranny you know when he writes in the Guru Granth Sahib against Babur and Babur Vani for instance he's talking about this oppression so Sikhs have always been about you know about <sighs> but I'll, let me get my take on it yeah, yeah, that's fine. so that comes in terms of actually the Sikhs not just being a passive community. Now this is this is this is this is let me clarify. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, so this Sikhs were never passive. Yeah. Whereas Guru Nanak wanted to get away from the cave dweller, the person who does the bhakti doesn't have to do it in a cave, has to be in the real world. Yeah, yeah. So therefore it was always about explaining this concept of Sant Sabai. Hmm. We can be saint soldiers, yeah. We do believe in Miri and Biri. So yep. that was like the starting point for this book. That's why the introduction talked quite a lot about that. Okay. And therefore, I wanted to actually explain a lot more about the missile period, and that's why you know we I wanted to bring in Jasa Singh Alawalia. I wanted to bring in Jarat Singh Sukhachakya. Yeah. Uh, whilst already covered Bagheel Singh partly in the British and Sikhs, this time I wanted to actually bring out other individuals from our calm. But to make it even more novel, so we always have a novelty, and the novelty here was that we wanted to correct a few wrongs as well. Okay. And what I mean by that is we have a very masculine tradition, as you already know, mm. in our calm. So therefore, I wanted to pay homage to individuals like Sadakur, yeah. on which uh, Maharaja Ranjit Singh was able to latch onto to create his Sikh empire. I wanted to talk about Sabkur, the Patiala princess, yeah. who fought with a Britisher called George Thomas, for yeah. instance, who actually was able to fight against the Marathas. So I want to bring in new individuals who'd obviously not been given that kind of um, yeah. light, if we can say. Well, Sadakor has been covered by... Who's the singing in Scotland? He's done a really good book on it. Yeah, Carlos Publisher. Yeah, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a yeah. novel. Yeah. That was a novel. Yeah. I wanted to actually, because the literature I'd actually gone back to was, you know, things like um, the Tuariks, for instance. Yeah. I looked at various kind of citations which actually explain her role, or both their roles, yeah. actually, in Sikh history, which hadn't been covered before. So, again, I wanted to cover them, not just from their most important things they've done, but also their life histories as well. Yeah. So, that was important. But then, because we're talking about the martial tradition... The focus was also on how Maharaja Ranjit Singh changed, if we can say. So the martial tradition changes during Maharaja Ranjit Singh's time because the Sikh Empire is now employing European mercenaries, for instance. Yes, yes. So I've got a chapter on people like General Allard, Ventura, Abu Dhabale, uh, General Court, and their history as well and what they brought to the game and how they changed the dynamics of the Punjab. Yes. But we sometimes... 
are our own kind of worst enemies when it comes to like portraying our individuals. And one individual which we've never focused on is Linasing Majitia, yeah. a astronomer, a kind of linguist, a technology inventor yeah. who created such great things for the Banth in the Punjab that his name is very, very talked about. So I thought, hold on, we've got British innovations, sorry, European innovations in the Sikh Empire. We need to focus on our Sikh aspects. More importantly, on what did Lina Singh Majithya do? He created gun foundries. Yeah. He improved on, when I talked about earlier, the Sikh cannons, for instance. Yeah. He improved on the British patterns, for instance. And he also wrote and was astronomer. He, he dealt a lot with astronomy as well. Yeah. So these are the things that most people don't talk about. So yeah. he was doing that in the Sikh Empire. And as a result of that, he was an inventor as well. So I wanted to focus on him. He did a lot of work around the Harmandir Saab as well. You know, getting marble brought in for the kind of, you know, around the Parkama and things like that. So his legacy was really important. Yeah. And of course... Well, he had a sundial, didn't he? he yeah, the sundial, the sundial which yeah. still exists. Because I, I saw that when I was there. I took yeah. pictures of we, it when I was there. We, we call it a Doopgari. Yeah. Doopgari, yeah. or we call it that. And most people don't know. And Most people ignore Most people don't it. see no, it. Right? They yeah. don't realise. When you're yeah, 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 going yeah. on your way to the bar side, in the main walkway, Le- left hand it's side, on yeah. the left-hand side about yeah. halfway up. That's it. And you just see it next to one of the poles. I remember... I knew about it beforehand, so I was taking pictures when I was there. Yeah, absolutely. So it was these kind of things which I wanted to actually kind of... Whilst it's about um, Sikh soldiery, this book, but it's also about inventions as well. Mm. So that's why I had to focus on them. On top of that, the greats, Hari Singh Nalwa, Akali Fula Singh. We really talk about these names, we talk about them as almost like mythical figures sometimes, almost like they, they cannot be reached. Yeah. So I wanted to break down um, their histories as well. Yeah. So looked at in terms of the conquest that Hari Singh Nalwa had actually undertaken yeah. and all the forts he'd created to, to cut off the Afghans for the first time. Yeah. You know, these kind of concepts are really, really important to actually understanding how the Sikh Empire became as great as it did. Yeah. Akali Fula Singh, well, we talk about um, his role as not just a a Khalsa in the sense that he's a military um, genius, yeah. but also his spiritual genius because when we go to the Akal Takht, he's a Jatadar of the Akal Takht as well. So yeah. the Nangs all and all the Sikhs all pay homage to him. But I took a different story to actually show the actual nature of the Khalsa mm. by when the British are hounding him. Okay. When he wipes out Captain White's um, camp, Battalion, yeah, yeah who's already there mapping uh, yeah. Sikh territories out. Remember, this is in the area of Naba, which is British territory at yeah, that time. It was, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, because of the uh, treaty signed. Yeah, the treaty had already been signed. So he'd, he'd been attacking the British in the, their alleged territory, so to speak. So mm. the story behind that was essentially to bring out the fact that no one in the Punjab could arrest him. Yeah. Letters going out to Maharaja Ranjit Singh saying, can you arrest him? He doesn't do anything because he knows the whole wrath of Punjab would happen. Yeah. Naba has been told to capture him. They're saying, well, we can't do anything. Other people have been told. And basically, this was a big challenge to the British. Yeah. There is no Banda on earth who can arrest Akali Fula Singh. Yeah. So it was these kind of stories which I wanted to bring about, not just from the traditional idea of these battles, but also in terms of what power they wielded mm. 
not just in the Punjab, but you know, when you read the British letters, yeah. you know, the, how are they describing a Gali Fula saying? Yeah. Can you see where I'm coming from? So, yeah, of course. So we get to the end of this book in terms of actually, again, talking about Sikh recruitment in um, the Indian Army. Yeah. But this time I'm going to talk about campaigns now. I'm talking about campaigns which most people had never heard of. How the Sikhs had gone to places like Africa, for instance. Yeah. How they'd gone to Malta. How they'd fought in against you know the north western frontier and also Burma and various other places. Mm. So very small descriptions has also been placed about all the battles in the colonial period as well. Yeah. So I think it's a rounded Qatar, which covers a lot of material again, but expands on various themes from the British and the Sikhs as well. No, that's awesome. Sir. The 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 question that's going to be asked and we always ask is going to be, what's next? You've heard me mention the word missiles. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so I've been working on trying to create a comprehensive account on the missiles. But the, the, the information is vast. What do we do? Do we concentrate all the 11 missiles plus one? Or do we concentrate on a specific missile? My research has centred quite a lot on the Gloria Singha missile. Yeah. Nothing related to uh, Ratan Singh Pungu, even though he's done a work on on the missile itself my um trajectory has always been on looking at the conquest of the sikhs toward delhi yeah. um you know around delhi all the way anupshar i talk about them in this previous works i've done yeah. rather than the conquest in lahore um, going toward peshawar because that's the bungi missile yeah, yeah. that's the missile they're all important so i am working on a book i've started writing as well um, how much I cover of all the eleven missiles I will do. Sorry, eleven plus one. Yeah. The reason I call it eleven plus one is we have the main missiles and then we have the plus one, which is the Fulkian missile. Yeah. Even though they were never called Fulkian missile, by the way. No, but it was given as a collective. Yeah, it's given as a collective. So I'm working on that. Yeah. Um, it may be a year or two before that would come out. Yeah. Um, I'm working with various publishers of which publisher I'm going to go with yeah. on this one. Um, so that's that's in the making. I something which most people may not be aware of is we are going to be having a Sikh soldier statue installed in Leicester. Yeah, I've already seen Tyrone's working on that. Yes, yeah, so I've been working on that for several years. Um, I was commissioned to work on work with um, with with artists like Tyrone, but also to actually work on the project management of it. Okay. So that's due for installation in October, around October yeah. twenty two. So that's taking place, so we're working busy on that as well. And then just from the Sikh Museum Initiative perspective, we are looking at doing more uh, 3D models as well. Yeah. And then another icing on the cake is I am actually working on my first documentary as well. Okay. So um, the theme is probably going to be based around Sikh relics and artefacts. Yeah. So we're going to start filming that later on this year. Yeah. So that's in conjunction with Sikh Lens. Okay. Uh, based in America. Yeah. So we started chalking out a trajectory on that as well. So even after 20, 25 years plus of working, there's still further projects yeah. because the job is never done, essentially. Yeah. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to slow things down a little bit, but at the same time, you can't slow down. <laughs> how much are you, you going to be 
able to cover is it like a series of documentaries or just no, one no this specific one Bang, is, gonna, is just going to be that's going to be difficult choosing just a couple of items that you about, mentioned it? about earlier yeah. on about specific well that's it but you're going to have to so, aren't you? yeah. you're going to have to limit it down that's can't. it so um, I'll take a cue from yourself uh, well, I, I, as a, I know, as a, I know uh, what I'd cover yeah, straight away yeah, I, I know so, I can see 10 items in my head now that I'd cover yeah um, not just on Sikh history that were, you know when you just look at, I could walk into the VNA and you could do twenty to thirty documentaries in just yeah. the VNA. No, absolutely. And this is the thing; it's such a varied um, field, but yeah. you know you have to kind of pigeonhole it in terms of one yeah. specific area, and so therefore it'll be on seat relics and artifacts, yeah. really. So, yeah. No, that's awesome, mm-hmm. sir. Right, thing we I think we've covered quite a bit with regards to the, the today's podcast. I just want prior to us finishing off. Can you put forward your social media accounts and details? Because there's going to be people out here, like I said, for me, the big process is you've gone through how to publish books. You've gone through all these different things. You've been on the news and, you know, all sorts of antiques roadshows and whatnot. But you've been on those things and you've not even mentioned them. But what I'm saying is there's a big portion of work that you have done, which there's going to be youngsters out there going, I want to do this. How do I get there? And the best way is don't contact me, contact you. Yeah. Why put me in a punga? Put you in a punga, that's better. <laughs> no, you know so. what? Uh, Singh, I think one thing which we didn't have was a hand up when yeah. we were starting. And, and you could probably appreciate, that, yeah, appreciate that yourself, where you went up to people, you didn't get that help, yeah. and no one knew, well, you didn't know where to start, yeah. so you had to do it yourself. So now we're in that position where anyone who asks those questions, we're more than welcome to help them. Exactly. We want more Gurinder Singh Mons, we want more Gurinder Singh Badeshis out there, we want so many researchers out there. We're, we're, we're just at this infancy of still doing this gum. Yeah. Even after all these years of working, mm. we're still at its infancy. So we need more researchers out there, so we welcome questions. Yep. And so the main, my main websites are www seekscholar.co.uk that's my personal website which talks about my work I've done for many years we have the Seek Museum uh, website which is www.seekmuseum.org.uk but coming off that we have the main website for the 3D relics which is www.angloseekmuseum.com and we can provide links um, on the podcast on how to get in touch Okay, what about your own social media accounts? So my social media accounts... Because um, you're on Facebook, yeah. you're on Instagram, so Facebook you're on is, Yeah, so like... Facebook is Grinder Singh Man. Yep. Twitter is, um, I think it's Seek, uh, Grinder Singh Man as well. On Instagram, it's Seek Scholar. Seek Scholar, yeah. Seek Scholar, so we've got those. So they're the three main ones which are predominantly used. And that's it, because youngsters are out. They don't look at websites, do they? No, no, no. no, no. <laughs> you know, unless they're pigeonholed or, yeah, and there's absolutely. a link on there. So yeah. the likelihood, if you're going to get questions, is going to be on one of those. So Absolutely, and I get a lot If of you want to start blocking people yeah. out now, you can do it today. But I just thought no, I'd no, warn you we, now. I very rarely have I blocked anyone, very <laughs> yeah. rarely. I mean, even if people, there's been, you know, uh, people don't like the work I do. Or, yeah, no, you still, it, I don't block anyone. Well, blocking or unblocking, it's more a case of, I don't ignore them. But, yeah. You know, yeah, that's fine, isn't it? <laughs> that kind of stuff. I don't have to answer your questions. Exactly. But I think the, also the key point, which we've not addressed as part of this documentary, is asking the question the right way. Yeah. 
ask the question the right way and you'll get the answer you want. But I exactly. think sometimes we don't even know how to ask the right questions sometimes. So, yeah. But uh, no, really appreciative of yourself, um, Biosab as well, doing the filming as well in terms of coming here today. Like you said, you've only touched, the, you've only scratched the surface of the work. That's the point, I've done, but yeah. maybe may a mocker for something Exactly, else but that's, future, that's, so. that, the whole point is you've, you've talked about your work. You've done it with ramblings, you've done it online, you've done it yeah. at museums. Yeah. If people want to know BBC, your work, they can come ITV, Yeah, but that's what I mean, yeah, you've done yeah, that. Yeah. You've done all that bullshit. Yeah. Nobody knows how, how much work you've done yeah. in the background. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so that sort of thing. If people are intrigued in your work, they'll come to it. Like, we yeah. come to you, you know, whenever you have something at a museum or whatever. Absolutely. We'll come to it because we're intrigued and we want to keep learning. And this, the, and that's the whole point of this. We want other people mm, to get yeah. eyes on this and go, yeah. well, hang on. You know, we had Singh come from Northampton as others, and he came down that yeah, day. And absolutely. Obviously, Karthar Singh was there, yeah, yeah. Bajal was there. Yeah. But, you know, people are there who want to learn. Mm. And this great thing, you know, I've got to give a shout out to Karthar Singh, Rajman, yeah. Taran from Taran 3D, individuals I've worked with for the last couple of years, and great support. Yeah. It's a great community thing as well. It's yeah. like, you know, it's getting people out there. During lockdown was a bit of a pain. But yeah. we're back out on the road as well. So we're going to be yeah. doing a lot of digital showcases again yeah. uh, throughout the year. So, you know, we get out the digital touchscreens. If you get the um, virtual reality headsets out as well. So yeah, people yeah. haven't seen that. So I've got pictures of that. So that will go yeah. whenever we come down. So, yeah, yeah I've got so, loads of that. Sort of so, you know, it's it's a community events as well. So it's not just for our arm. Like I said, it's all for, for regular individuals just to kind of learn more about Sekatiyas as yeah. well. So that's, what's, that's the beauty of our initiative, essentially. Yeah. No, have you got any questions for us about the podcast no uh, Singh I think uh, you're doing a great job in terms of actually what you've created you've created a platform for researchers individuals are doing great gum and just keep up the great work and we'll take it from there but uh, look forward to the end of the podcast and sharing it out with individuals yeah, again Gummel Breathe I uh, want to say thank you as well because you do a lot of work in the in the community you've written quite a lot of books as well and, you know, you're doing your thing as well. And we need yeah. more people like yourself and myself out there just getting the outputs, I think. Yeah. That's, the, that's the beauty of it. And that's the whole point of this. It's to encourage... The, the issue we have, and, and we've said this on this podcast numerous times, mm. we're in our 40s or 50s. We're all coming yeah, up to yeah. that age. That's it. Where are the people in their 20s today? Yeah. Because I can't see them. They don't exist. And that's the issue. Mm. Where are the people in their 20s today? Mm. And, and that's worrying. It is worrying. That's worrying yeah. because... You look at it, you go, well, we should be going and handing over stuff to other people now. Absolutely, yeah. And they should be taking the lead. But I can't see them. I can't it, see them at all. There's very few in between uh, yeah. of those people. Yeah. At the moment, I don't see them. And, and the whole point is this, is to ignite that sort of spark in those oh. individuals and go, actually, yeah, I am at that age. These are all working as well. It's yeah. not like we do this in our... Yeah, yeah, we yeah, do yeah. everything in our spare time. That's we, it. We've all got jobs. We all mm. work... 12-hour days, 16-hour days sometimes, yeah. you know, we're mm. still doing this. It's to try to get the next generation to Absolutely. go, I want to do that. Yeah. And, and for that reason, I just want to say thank you very much for having us on. Well, we appreciate your time. Absolutely. Um, mm. I apologise, we were supposed to come early, idiot over there chopped his finger off. Well, so, we all, get, we yeah, all have exactly. issues sometimes now, <laughs> exactly. and we won't comment about this. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. But no, on behalf of the podcast, yeah. Flawed Fulch and Fantastic yeah. One, so thank you for being yeah. fantastic today. And I've learned a lot from, mm. like I said, all the years I've learned loads from you, and mm. I'll continue to learn, but thank you. Why would you call Why would you, 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 you